My name is Nate Phillips, and I am the champion of J.I.W. After our debut episode of season four took the world by storm, the high, yeah, that's right, the highest rated premiere in J.I.C.N. history, and it's all because of me, and this is my confidant, the man closest to me. Hit him with a little bit of that bubbly buckles. Check us out on Journey Into Wrestling, where the podfather and I run down everything from the bingo halls to the brightest delights. If it's in between the ropes, it's on Journey Into Wrestling. Every other Wednesday on the Journey Into Comics Network. What on earth is that? It's a Journey Into Comics Network production! Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode 54 of Poor360. As always, I am your host, Andrew Porna. Thank you for joining me here on this Tuesday. I know you are enjoying it. I know we had some kind of crazy weather over this past weekend. Lots of snow, lots of ice, lots of fun if you live in the Midwest. Now, before I get into the show, I want to first comment on the uh, background noise. Um, uh, on the last... Uh, podcast i didn't get a uh i didn't have the the noise issues but i do have an aquarium about about six feet behind me that's bubbling so you're gonna hear some like water sounds i also have my bird in here with me because if you listen to anything about me on the network you know i have a lot of pets and the pets tend to make their appearance known when i record so i just want to get that away out front um also before i get into the meat of the show i want to uh again give thanks to uh, the hosts of the Fan Dummies podcast, which I had the joy of being on their, uh, I believe it was their 42nd episode. Yeah, so uh, it was on their 42nd episode we talked about the Crisis Crossover event on the CW. Um, the podcast is done by uh, one of my uh, old friends from college. It was nice to be able to be on there. So uh, if you want to hear our discussion on that, go to fandummies.com. They give a nice shout out to the Journey to Comics Network, so I'm thankful for that. And they um, give a shout out to Poor360 as well. So it's great to be on there, great to chat. I'm always uh, love it. And uh, if you've missed the podcast we've done on JSC or old uh, Poor Entertainment, Poor uh, Report stuff where we talked about the crossover, definitely uh, something to jump in to listen to because it's definitely a great episode. I encourage everyone to listen. Like I said, fandummies.com. So. It was, it was a good experience to be able to record over the week, and even though the weather was kind of cold. Now, I got a lot I kind of want to talk to because it has been... So I did do a two-parter. It's been a little bit since we've had some current news, and I know there's been some uh, some new stuff regarding the Democratic candidates, and uh, we're going to kind of save that because I know that was just your last episode. Uh, I know there's been a little bit of changes uh, since there was a debate also recently about it. So... Let's, uh, we'll get that. So I have just a few articles I kind of want to talk about today, uh, involving some stuff going on. So we got some sports, some entertainment, some, uh, impeachment news, and some, uh, rally news about, uh, something that happened in Virginia, uh, earlier today. So let's jump right in to the news probably that a lot of you are aware of, and that involves Super Bowl 2020. It is just a few short weeks away, a week from Sunday or, um... 
two weeks from uh, Sunday's game. So it looks like, not to spoil the lead, but it'll be a Chiefs 49ers Super Bowl. We saw the Packers shut out. We saw well back. We saw the Patriots shut out. But it looks like it's going to be a good game. I know neither of these teams have been in the running for a while, so it's good to uh, see them up there. So this is Super Bowl 54, I believe. Is this what is it? What it is? Liv? Yeah, I'm saying that's 54. 54. Um, it'll be the yeah the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, San Francisco 49ers in Miami on February 2nd. I'd like them to do in the Midwest, but I know with February in the Midwest, it might it could be five degrees or negative twenty. Who's to say? And they want to make sure they have the most attendance, the most advertising, all that. So this is the first time in fifty years that the Chiefs have been able to reach the Super Bowl, and they're looking to win their first title since nineteen sixty nine. As for the Four Niners, their latest Super Bowl appearance came back in twenty twelve, but their last championship was back in nineteen ninety four. So both clubs are trying to snap rather substantial droughts. 2012, I don't think it's that long ago. I know it is eight years now, but... Yeah, so it's uh, good that these... Definitely for the Chiefs, though, 50 years. That's that's monumental. Um, especially considering this is the uh, NFL's 50th season. Or, not sorry, not 50th. 100th season, so... That means almost the half the lifetime of the NFL that they've been kind of out of the running. Now, I want to then again... Um, so, the matchup will naturally be picked apart and dissected throughout over the next two weeks, but allow you, you'll you see a quick preview of what's to come in Super Bowl 54. Um, yeah, there's a reference, this is from CBS Sports, this is referencing their uh, their podcast called Pick 6, so if you're a sports fan, you probably already know about that. I'm not the biggest sports fan, so I'm kind of off the radar on this. Yes, Peter, sorry, he apparently really likes football. Um... So, so how the games went over the weekend, the Chiefs uh, outlasted an early Titans run. So similar to the divisional round, the Chiefs found themselves down early to the Tennessee Titans. Lead grew as high as 17-7 in the second quarter, but Patrick Mahomes and company were once again able to surge back, scoring 28 unanswered points to pull away and stamp their tickets to Super Bowl 54. Mahomes flashes brilliance with, with both his arms, 294 yards passing and three touchdowns in his legs. 50 yards rushing and a touchdown. Kansas City was also able to slow down Titans running back Derrick Henry. So, on a historic pace heading into this matchup, he rushed for 69 yards in the game, which with only 7 yards coming in the second half. So, the Fortnite also rolled over the Packers early. The Fortnite built up an early lead that really set themselves up for success. They dropped 27 unanswered points to start the game and held Green Bay scoreless in the first half. Even as the Packers were able to make it. A more competitive game in the second half by scoring 13 points in the fourth quarter. That early run by San Francisco was enough to lock up the NFC Championship. A large part of the Niners of this came through the running game as Raheem Mostert went crazy and rushed for 220 yards and four touchdowns to the win. Thanks to that success on the ground, quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo wasn't called upon to do much and only dropped back to pass eight times while completing six of those throws for 77 yards. So now we get to the odds. So the Kansas City Chiefs are the slight favorite to win Super Bowl 54 as they are surrendering 1.5 points on the opening line. This is essentially a pick em at this point, uh, and some sports books opened it as such. Well, I'll certainly be interested to see how much this line moves as the week progresses. Both these teams do have the ability to put up points in a hurry, so that 52.5 over under total is also pretty intriguing. For what it's worth, both the AFC and NFC Championship games hit the over as we look 
Uh, yada yada yada. Um, so the last time the Chiefs Fortnite were head to head was back in Week Three of 2018 season. Most remember the game at the contest where San Francisco quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo suffered a season-ending ACL injury on a scramble. The two quarterbacks did play well in that game as Garoppolo threw for over 250 yards and two touchdowns, while Patrick Mahomes went for 315 yards passing and three touchdowns. Given their youth, both Garoppolo and Mahomes will likely take center stage leading up to the Super Bowl. Yes, Peter. Sorry, he is being extra chatty today. Uh, for Kansas City, they'll be looking to once again slow down a strong rushing attack. After holding Titans star running back Derrick Henry to just 69 yards rushing in the AFC Championships, the Chiefs will now face a 49ers team that just rushed for 287 yards on a seven years or seven on seven yards a carry in the NFC Championship. Meanwhile, the 49ers will like to contain Mahomes in a similar fashion they did with Aaron Rodgers in the NFC Championship, particularly in the first half. Having Nick Bosa, D. Ford, and other pass rushers constantly attacking Mahomes will be critical to the Niners host, hoisting the Lombardi Trophy. If the Chiefs win, they'll be their second Super Bowl title in franchise history. Mahomes would then be the first quarterback in NFL history to win a Super Bowl and an NFL MVP award before the age of 25. Head coach Andy Reid will also win his elusive first Super Bowl title as a head coach. If the 49ers win, that will put the franchise in a tie with the Pittsburgh Steelers and the New England Patriots for the most Super Bowl titles won by a single franchise in NFL history with six. So, um, yeah, that's really kind of gets to where we are um, Obviously, the game is not for a couple weeks because um, next week is the Pro Bowl, and then it'll follow after that. So get your Super Bowl stuff ready because there'll, there'll probably be parties and stuff that you're going to go to. But if not, definitely just enjoy the game and then end a football talk for a little bit, which is always a nice touch. Now, moving away from sports and into political news, we have some impeachment status. Um... As of earlier this evening, the impeachment resolution shortens trials opening arguments to two days per side. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell plans to give House impeachment managers and President Donald Trump's legal team each 24 hours divided over two days for their opening arguments in the Senate's impeachment trial, a move that indicates Senate Republicans are pushing to finish the trial as quickly as possible, ahead of the President's February 4th State of the Union address. The timeline laid out by the Kentucky Republicans' four-page organizing resolution which was obtained by CNN, is a break from the impeachment trial of President Bill Clinton when the 24 hours were split over a four-day period. Democrats opposed McConnell's schedule, which House Democrats' aides said Monday was an effort to conceal the president's misconduct to the dark of night. It's clear Senator McConnell is hell-bent on making it much more difficult to get witnesses and documents and intent on rushing the trial through, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer of the New York said in a statement. On something as important as impeachment, Senator McConnell's resolution is nothing short of a national disgrace. The condensed timeline for opening arguments raised the prospect the trial will have 12-hour days and go late into the night as the trial begins at 1 p.m. Eastern Time each day. The Senate will begin, or the Senate will debate and vote on McConnell's resolution on Tuesday, kicking off the trial in earnest after the ceremonial proceedings last week. Schumer said he would offer amendments on Tuesday to address the many flaws in this deeply unfair proposal and to subpoena the witnesses and documents we have requested. Schumer said Senate Democrats, or Schumer and Senate Democrats have pushed for the Senate to hear from four witnesses, including former National Security Advisor John Bolton and acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, and has been a document that the White House blocked from the House's impeachment inquiry. The panel says he has Republican votes to back the rules resolution without Democratic support. White House Legislative Director, or Affairs Director Eric Uland said in a statement the White House is gratified that the draft resolution protects the President's rights to a fair trial. 
We look forward to presenting a vigorous defense of the president on the facts and the process as quickly as possible and seeking an acquittal as swiftly as possible, he said. The organizing resolution is the opening salvo in what's shaping up to be a brief, bitterly contested impeachment trial after the House passed two articles of impeachment last month, charging Trump with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The House managers and the president's legal team will be doing the arguing in public. Senators can only debate in closed sessions during the trial, but an intense debate over the direction of the trial nevertheless is likely to pay out between Republicans and Democratic senators, while Schumer looks to peel off four GOP senators to support subpoenaing witnesses and documents. McConnell's organizing resolution puts off the question of witnesses until after the two sides present their opening arguments, and there are 16 hours of questions for senators, which they will ask through Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, Chief Justice, sorry, who's writing over the trial. At this point, the resolution includes a proposal in which the Senate would vote on a motion on whether it shall be in order to consider and debate under the impeachment rules any motion to subpoena witnesses or documents. The Senate votes no. No one, the impeachment managers, the presidential team, or senators will be permitted to move to subpoena witnesses or documents, according to a Senate GOP leadership aide. The Senate approves the resolution that both sides would be able to make motions to subpoena witnesses, at which point the Senate would debate and vote on them. The resolution's language providing for a vote on whether to call witnesses followed exhaustive negotiations between McConnell's office and the Senate Republicans, uh, Senate Republican moderates, including Senator Susan Collins of Maine, who's up for re-election, Mitt Romney of Utah, Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Aides familiar with the negotiations until the staff went word by word to the resolution, dissecting what language would be enough to garner the moderate votes McConnell would need to pass the resolution with just Republican support. In a statement Monday, Alexander praised McConnell's proposed rules, saying the resolution guarantees a vote on whether we need additional evidence at this appropriate time. He added the proposal established a fundamentally the same rules the Senate approves by a vote of 100 to 0 for the Clinton impeachment trial in 1999. I almost said 100 losing my mind the resolution does not name any specific witnesses if any witnesses are subpoenaed the resolution says they will be deposed first before the senate decides whether they will testify McConnell said he was modeling the impeachment trial of the president after the clinton trial but there are differences in the organizing resolution beyond just the timeline the resolution does not automatically admit the house this is evidence that has been submitted to the senate and instead allows for a vote on whether the evidence should be admitted for the trial the Senate's GOP leadership aide said that the evidence in the Clinton trial was different than the House's in this case because it came from a federal grand jury process and not the impeachment inquiry where Republicans say the president was denied due process. But Democrats are likely to argue that the Senate Republicans are trying to suppress evidence that's harmful to the president, particularly the new development that have occurred since the House impeached Trump last month, such as the Government Accountability Office ruling that the president violated the Impoundment Control Act by withholding Ukraine's security assistance. There's no mention of a motion to dismiss the impeachment articles in the organizing resolution, something the president and his congressional allies have pushed for, but there is an option for motion in the trial after the resolution on hearing from witnesses, which would, rep which would present an opportunity to propose a motion to dismiss later in the trial. The Senate Republican aide said the president's legal team has the right to make a motion to dismiss right after the rules resolution is adopted, but such a move is not expected to, given that the Senate Republicans, including McConnell, have said they're opposed to that tactic. And that's just from Monday. Um, there's also uh, kind of some more tangential related things, and that involves uh, regarding Lev Parnas, who, and from this article says, asked the Attorney General William Barr to recuse himself from the investigation. 
So an attorney for indicted Rudy Giuliani associate Lev Parnas on Monday filed a request for the recusal of Attorney General William Barr in connection with the prosecution of Parnas, alleging Barr has a conflict of interest and should be removed from the matter in an effort to preserve the public trust in the rule of law. In a letter sent to Barr and filed in a New York federal court where Parnas is facing trial for allegedly violating campaign finance laws, Parnas's attorney said Barr's involvement in the case resulted in both harmful perceptions and actual harm to Mr. Parnas. The attorney, Joseph Bondi, asked for the appointment of a special prosecutor from outside the Justice Department to oversee the cause. A Justice Department spokeswoman declined to comment. The actual harm Bondi cited in the letter is when he described his delay in the production of discovery materials in the Parnas prosecution, which Bondi says left his client able to turn over documents in a timely manner to comply with a subpoena issued by the House representatives as part of the impeachment inquiry, unless meant Parnas couldn't be properly assessed as a potential witness. Bondi doesn't specify how Barr's purported conflict uh, conflict of interest might have contributed to any delay in discovery. Bondi also suggests that Barr's oversight on this case is linked with to what Bondi describes as a refusal by New York federal prosecutors to meet with his client, who Bondi says is willing to disclose information on President Donald Trump, Giuliani, and lawyers Victoria Tonsing and Joseph DeGenova, among others. The social Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office, which is prosecuting partners, declined to comment. So more fun. This is tangibly related, but I know his name has been circulating a lot in the last few days. So I thought it was worth bringing up. Now, before we get out of political news and into entertainment news, we have to talk about a rally that happened in Virginia's capital about the Second Amendment. Now, a gun rights rally in Richmond that brought thousands of people from across the country to protest a push for Virginia Democrats for comprehensive gun control ended peacefully without any major incidents, which is very thankful. Um... Those violence has slid in the days leading up to Monday's demonstration following reports that white supremacists, armed militia, and other extremist groups were planning to attend. Governor Ralph Northam, a Democrat, had declared a state of emergency la- late last week and beefed up security around the Capitol. Thousands of people came to Richmond to make their voices heard. Uh, he said in a statement Monday uh, evening, today showed that when people disagree, they can do so peacefully. The issues before us evoke strong emotions, and progress is often difficult. I'll continue to listen to the voices of Virginians, and I'll continue to do everything in my power to keep our Commonwealth safe. The Joint Information Center, made up of representatives from the capital, Richmond, and Virginia State Police, estimated 6,000 people were allowed into a fenced-in area of Capitol Square. They estimated around 16,000 were outside the gates, though event organizers said many more had turned out. Many of these outside the barrier carried long firearms and wore bright orange stickers that read, Guns Save Lives. Capitol Police said a 20-year-old woman had been arrested and charged with one felony count of wearing a mask in public. Law enforcement said they warned the woman twice to remove the identity covering her face, but she had refused. Monday's event brought people from every corner of the country to stand next to Second Amendment supporters. They didn't come for your guns in Virginia, they didn't come for them in West Virginia, demonstrator Annette Parker told Fox News, knowing that she drove six hours to get to the event. The throngs who gathered in Richmond Monday were heard in large groups reciting the Second Amendment in unison, while others broke out in chants of, We will not comply. When one speaker asked the crowd if they were ready for gun control, the crowd yelled back, No! Exclamation point. Other speakers, including Republican Delegate John McGuire III, used the event to drum up support for President Trump, which we did earlier this morning that the Democratic Party is the great Commonwealth of Virginia... Or the, sorry. He tweeted early this morning that the Democratic Party in the great Commonwealth of Virginia are working hard to take away your Second Amendment rights. I'm here if you're sick and tired of Republicans who do not support President Trump, McGuire said, revving up those in attendance. The president of the Virginia Citizens Defense League, the nonprofit organization of the rally, told Fox News that it was the pro-gun groups who had been stoking fear of potential violence at the event. 
It's the Democrats' Philip Van Cleve said it's most almost likely they want something to happen. It sounds crazy, but they keep doing it, and you have to start wondering if that's intentional. Sacks chain lake fencing, white tents, and rows of metal detectors were in place early Monday morning as some demonstrators began making their way inside the Capitol. But, uh, sorry about that. But many instead decided to stand outside the security perimeter with their guns. Others were seen carrying Americans and Gadsden flags, while some were passing around petitions demanding the ouster of Governor Ralph Northam, the state's Democrat leader. Members associated with the Light Foot Militia, some of whom were banned from Charlottesville, Virginia, following the deadly 2017 Unite the Right rally, uh, were expected to attend Monday's protest. Richard Spencer, a prominent white nationalist, has indicated he might make an appearance. Last week, three gun control-related bills advanced in Virginia's General Assembly, setting the stage for a contentious showdown between gun rights advocates and the Democratic lawmakers who campaigned on bringing change to the state following last year's mass shooting at a Virginia, a Virginia Beach municipal complex. The bill that sailed through the Senate Judiciary Committee proposed to require background checks on all firearms purchases. Uh, sorry, proposed to require background checks on all firearm purchases, allow law enforcement to temporarily remove guns from people deemed to be a risk to themselves or others, limit handgun purchases to once a month, and let localities decide on whether to ban weapons from certain events. Shh, be quiet. To become laws, the bills would have to pass the full Senate and House of Delegates before going to the governor for his signature. In a symbolic sign of defiance, more than 100 municipalities in Virginia have des designated themselves as a safe haven or sanctuary for the Second Amendment. Lawmakers and authorities in those areas have said they will refuse to enforce new gun control laws the Virginia legislature passes. The state's only self-proclaimed socialist Democrat, Lee Carter, has said he will be heading to an undisclosed location to work Monday instead of the Capitol. People are threatening to murder me and murder my family over something I'm not even doing, Carter told multiple media outlets. These threats are far more harmful and more numerous than anything I've seen before. I mean, it's only I'm the only socialist elected to a legislator in the South, so I do occasionally get waves of death threats, but every two to three months it'll happen. But this one is far larger and far more serious than anything I've seen before my, by orders of magnitude. Carter said he has reported the threats to the Virginia Capitol Police. But some demonstrators in the Richmond tell Fox News he should make an appearance. I think it's ridiculous a former Marine would stay at home, said Angela Dart in Fairfax County. If he's so anti-Second Amendment, you'd think he'd make an effort to be here. Monday's rally was part of the Lobby Day on an annual event in Virginia where advocates of a variety of causes descend on Richmond's Capitol Square to plead their cases to legislators. Gunner advocates have shown up in past years, but the turnout Monday has grown astronomically. The rally Monday also came about two and a half years after the deadly incident in Charlottesville in which hundreds of white nationalists and their supporters gathered about 70 miles from Richmond to demonstrate over plans to remove a Confederate statue. They were met by counter-protesters and violence quickly erupted. At one point, a vehicle drove into a crowd of counter-protesters, killing one and injuring more than a dozen others. I remember that video when it happened. That was tragic. And they actually used uh, some of that footage um, in the movie Black Klansman. Um, so it was uh, definitely very powerful stuff. Now moving to more light-hearted uh, news. Well, semi-light-hearted. Um, this is from Showbiz Cheat Sheet. Um, it says, an original trilogy Star Wars character died in The Rise of Skywalker and no one noticed. A number of characters die in The Rise of Skywalker and a number of them manage to cheat death, just like their Disney stablemates in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. However, an original trilogy character did die for real in Episode Nine, and it seemed to have escaped attention. Some would argue that's because the movie is so frenetic. Detractors have argued that rush production resulted in a choppy finale to the Skywalker saga, with not one but two alternate versions of the movie that are supposedly better. 
Zuko and Children killed off a lot of prominent characters. What follows is not a comprehensive list, but it hits the high points or low points, depending on how you look at it. The major deaths, uh, these are also a spoiler warning for anyone who hasn't seen Star Wars or has plans to see Star Wars. Don't listen anymore. So the major death of Force Awakens was that of Han Solo at the hands of his son, the former Ben Solo, turned to Kylo Ren. The Last Jedi, it was Luke's turn to go, and the Rise of Skywalker saw the departure of Leia after the ultimate passing of Carrie Fisher 2017. So the three sequel movies cut off one of the principles each. So my characters met their demise too. Leia almost met her end when the First Order attacked the ailing rebel fleet, and one of those attacks killed Admiral Akbar, the alien character best known for saying, It's a trap. Return of the Jedi, it was another minor character from the movie who met his end in episode 9. Screen Rant reports. Uh, Screen Rant reports that Neenub died in The Rise of Skywalker. Although his name it sounds like the song that included the original version of Return of the Jedi, it's actually the character who flew the Millennium Falcon with Lando Calrissian during the Death Star attack. Han and Julia are working to disable the Death Star's shield. Uh, Nine Nub uh, has been an arms dealer and a smuggler before joining the Rebellion, and he continues to fight on the side with the Resistance facing down the First Order. In the Battle of Exegol, that includes Episode 9, Nub is flying the Tantive Four, the Rebel ship attacked in the very first scene of A New Hope. The ship is one of many that is destroyed by Palpatine's Force Lightning. Fans shouldn't be bad about missing this for a couple reasons. First, the death of Nine Nub was not specifically shown, and because of that, not even the actor who played Nub was aware this character didn't make it. The two alternate versions of the Rise character technically do not exist. The first is the alleged J.J. cut, so named when a leaker on Reddit claimed that Disney Lucasfilm took Rise Skywalker out of director J.J. Abrams' hands and hacked down his three-hour cut. Phantom clamored to release the J.J. cut, but that's probably nothing more than an early assembly, and early assemblies almost always run long. The version was that was the uh, Rise Skywalker's original director, Colin Trevorrow, had written with his partner, uh... Derek Connolly before they left the project that, that leaked this week and the AV Club said it was arguably better than that what was released and more coherent plotting and no role for Palpatine other than a minor appearance. Whether a longer Abrams cut or Trevor script would have made the Rise of Skywalker better will never be known. Either way, Nine of Passing is best recorded in social media tweets and online Star Wars encyclopedia. That was interesting. I didn't realize um, I know he was in Rise of Skywalker. I didn't realize he didn't make it uh, during that climactic moment. Now moving into another thing that happened uh, Sunday evening, which was the SAG Awards um, on the network and um, specifically on last week's uh, Foodies Watching Movies specials. Um, we were talking about the award shows. This is one of the last award shows before the Oscars, one of the last big ones. We still have BAFTA uh, remaining. But this is kind of where we're at right now. So the SAG Awards. So we have eight memorable moments, at least as reported by the Hollywood Reporter. <clears throat> so the 26th Annual Screen Actors Guild Awards were held at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles on Sunday. Though the 2020 SAG Award remained hostless, Schitt's Creek stars Eugene and Den Levy bookend the not event by presenting the first award and kicking the I'm an Actor segment up a notch and returning at the end of the night to present the top prize of Best Cast. The night was full of unexpected wins from Parasite's historic Best Cast triumph, Jennifer Aniston and Sam Rockwell's surprise victories for the roles in Morning Show and Fosse Verdon, respectively. Rockwell beat out Golden Globe and Emmy winners Russell Crowe and Jarrell Jerome. Uh, perhaps not as surprising were the individual film acting awards which went to Laura Dern, Brad Pitt, Renee Zellweger, and Joaquin Phoenix. Both of whom, or all of whom, have been sweeping the awards up to this point. The Hollywood Reporter rounded up the standouts from the 2020 SAG Awards. 
The powerful moment in the night's biggest wins, including memorable speeches from Pitt, the cast of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and the Lifetime Achievement Award recipient Robert Nero, Anderson and Pitt's reunions and Parasite staying ovation. So let's see what we have. Uh, so Jennifer Anderson and Brad Pitt met up backstage after their wins. The Best Male Supporting Actor award went to Brad Pitt, whose speech was filled to the brim with jokes, both self-deprecating and otherwise. When Pitt said that playing his role in Once My Time in Hollywood was a difficult part, a guy who gets high, takes his shirt off, and doesn't get on with his wife, it was a bit of a stretch. The camera cut to capture several reactions from the actors in the audience, including one from Pitt's ex-wife, Jennifer Aniston. I actually didn't know they were married. I kind of thought they were just dated, maybe? I don't know. I wasn't paying that much attention in, like, 2004, 2. I don't know when they were together. Anderson later won Best Actress in a Drama Series for a role in Apple TV's The Morning Show and gave an impassioned speech in which she thanked a number of her peers and colleagues, including Adam Sandler, who received zero nominations for his critically lauded performance in Uncut Gems, a movie that I really can't wait to see. I can't wait till it comes out in video so I can rent it. Brad Pitt was later seen watching her win her award. They met up backstage, and after each of their wins, congratulated each other for their successful nights. So, father and son Shit's Creek duo Eugene and Dan Levy, or Levy, I don't know how it's pronounced, opened up about the award show by taking the traditional I Am An Actor speech to a new level. Hearing from Christina Applegate and Cynthia Revo about their first acting gigs, the camera lingered on Eugene Levy as described in great ongoing detail about his earliest recollection of wanting to be an actor, while Dan sat impatiently behind him, waiting for his turn to speak. Dan finally called out to his father, saying that he had taken up so much time that he had to cut Tom Hanks' speech. A quick cut to Hanks' placidly annoyed face. Moments later, kicked the joke of another notch. The pair then took the, to the stage, which Dan professed that they were definitely not being paid, but I offered an internship credit and a free flu shot. And Julian saying that he sees a lot of De Niro in my own work. Then they presented Tony Shalhoub with his award for his performance in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So, Parasite cast received standing ovations. The cast of Bong Joon-ho's Parasite took the stage to introduce their film and immediately received a standing ovation and extended applause before they were able to speak. They would later receive another when they won for Best Cast in a Motion Picture, the first foreign language film to win the award. Song, Hang, Song Kang-ho, Park so Dam. Choi Woo Sheik, Lee Jong Un, and Lee Sun Kyun spoke Korean on stage as they introduced their film's montage of the night, but they had to first wait for the audience reaction of their appearance to die down. They had to spoke about their characters in the film and about how audience sentiment shifted as the narrative of the film played out. When they received their best ensemble award, Song spoke through translator Sharon Coy, saying, Although the film is called Parasite, I believe the story is about a coexistence and how we can all live together. So now we have the youth, the enthusiastic warning from the JoJo Rabbit cast. I'm said the euthanistic. Whole nother word. Uh, Taika Waititi, Scarlett Johansson, breakout JoJo Rabbit star Roman Griffin Davis presented the film at the award show and seemed to have fun time doing so. Davis was so excited to get through his lines of the speech. The film tells the story of a 10-year-old boy whose beliefs are challenged by his own growing life experience. And after living line, he immediately pumped his fists in triumph. Why, T.D. congratulated him on it. Yes, you did it. Why, T.D. continued seeming to drop into characters. He said, it's a tragedy, it's a comedy, and it's... What are you laughing at? He exclaimed as the audience erupted in laughter. He finished up his speech by saying, it's a coming-of-age story, and it's a warning. But T.D. drew out the last word before pausing and waiting for audience laughter to roll in. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel's Pro Fleabag Speech. The Marvelous Maisel cast took the stage to accept the show's second award of the night for outstanding performance by an ensemble in a comedy series. I voted for Fleabag. This is really weird. This makes no sense. Alex Borstein said, kicking off the cast acceptance speech. 
Fleabag is brilliant. You guys are brilliant. Rachel Brosnan Shineman saying the cast was very surprised and that she even forgot to vote. I didn't vote for Rachel. I didn't vote for Tony. Uh, uh, Bornstein added that, uh, added and then asked someone else in the cast to take over the speech. The ensemble extends far beyond those you see on this stage. Brosnan stepped in. We're miss we are missing, as Tony said, one really, really important member of our ensemble tonight, Brian Tarantina, who had such an amazing time with him last year. So thank you so much for this. This is dedicated to him. Shooters Beats thanking their cast directors and again pointing out that Fleabag should have gotten the award. Uh, we also had Brad Pitt's Tinder joke, Quentin Tarantino's foot fetish. So following his comedic acceptance speech for his Golden Globe win January 5th, Pat started off his acceptance speech for his Best Supporting Actor win at the SAG Awards the same way. I gotta add this to my Tinder profile, he joked. First time second, we went on to thank his fellow actors and actresses, telling them he's been mesmerized by all their work, especially addressing his fellow Once Upon a Time in Hollywood cast. I want to thank my co-stars, Leo, Margot Robbie, Margot Robbie's feet, Margaret Qualley's feet, Dakota Fanning's feet, seriously, Quentin has separated more women from their shoes than the TSA. Pitt continued explaining that acting is a team sport, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood gave him a chance to work with some incredible people, legends, and a new generation of actors, too. Well said, Robert De Niro received a Lifetime Achievement Award. So he received his Lifetime Achievement Award for his legendary acting career and joined the ranks of former recipients like Morgan Freeman, Rita Marino, Debbie Reynolds, and James Earl Jones. De Niro opened a speech explaining that as an actor, you don't get to take victory laps because you're too worried about your next project. Adding, like Pitt, that acting is about a support system. The award recipient thanks SAG-AFTRA for all the union does for the actors who are part of it, especially in these days when there's hostility against unions, he said. There's right and there's wrong, and there's common sense, and there's abuse of power, Nero said in his speech. And as a citizen, I have as much right as anybody, an actor, an athlete, a musician, anybody else, to my voice, my opinion. And if a bigger voice, because of my situation, I'm going to do, use it whenever possible, I see a blatant abuse of power. Leonardo DiCaprio introduced De Niro, sharing how De Niro uh, has been a role model since he was a teenager. Robert De Niro is elemental. He feels like if he's always been here and always will be here, DiCaprio said, adding an antidote from his childhood when his father took him to see Midnight Run in theaters. As the lights went down, he turned to me and said, if you really want to be an actor and get into this profession, if you want to understand what great acting is, you watch that man on screen. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix also applaud, applauds his fellow nominees. Joaquin Phoenix took home the top award for a male actor in a leading role in the film. Uh, first time Sag Arnold began his speech by calling himself out on not fully appreciating the acting community he's been a part of for years. And I realize how fortunate I am to be a part of this community, he said. The actor continued by shouting out his fellow nominees, Christian Bale, Leonardo DiCaprio, Adam Driver, and Taron Edgerton. When he started acting again after a brief hiatus, Phoenix said he always he would always make it to the final callback and lose to the same one kid, DiCaprio. You've been an inspiration for over 25 years to me and so many people, and thank you very much, Phoenix said to DiCaprio. Christian, you commit to your roles in ways I could only dream of, asking the actor to just suck once. Adam, I've been watching you the last few years, and you've just been turning in these beautiful, nuanced, incredible, profound performances. I'm so moved by you, and you were just devastating in this film, and you should be here, he said to Driver. Taryn, where are you? I'm so happy for you wherever you are. Hey, hey, man, you're beautiful. You're so beautiful in this movie, and I'm so happy for you, and I can't wait to see what you do. The Joker actor ended his speech playing tribute to his favorite actor and former Joker, Heath Ledger. And so, and I know... If you listen to uh, yesterday's JIC, you know um, that Nate does talk about the Joker film. Uh, Liz and I have both seen it. We're going to be seeing it again as a part of the showcase. So uh, definitely, if you haven't listened to JIC yet, definitely go back and do that. But I think that'll do it for this week's Poor 360. This has been episode 54. 
always a pleasure uh, to bring you the news, bring you the the topics. Um, definitely going to have a one-topic show next week, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, have a great week. Enjoy the new year. Uh, I'll talk to you again before that, but just uh, stay warm, stay happy, stay active, do all you can, and that'll do it for Poor360. I have been Andrew Poor. Bye, guys.